what I believe was the title of two separate essays by the philosopher Bertrand Russell and the novelist E.M. Forster in the early 20th century. These two humanist activists set out their approach to life, their fundamental worldview, in a way that was accessible to all. I'm Andrew Copson, Chief Exec of Humanists UK, and in this podcast I'm talking to humanists today about what they believe, to understand more about the values, convictions and opinions they live by. This week we're with Margaret Heffernan. Margaret is an entrepreneur, chief executive, writer and keynote speaker. You've probably seen some of her very successful TED Talks. She's the former chief executive of five businesses, uh, described by The Hollywood Reporter as one of the top 100 media executives. And she's the author of many books, including, most recently, Uncharted, How to Map the Future. Margaret, you've recently been writing and thinking and speaking about the future, uh, specifically the attitude we ought to adopt to uncertainty. Is it in this work that we can maybe start to see some of your own beliefs and attitudes? Uh, Definitely. I mean, I think all of the books that I've written um, contain a particular perspective. I think it's more obvious in this book. Um, It's possibly a more personal book, which may be one reason people seem to love it. And it really stemmed from, um, I guess, my dawning awareness that people had a lot of very magical beliefs about the future. And I noticed that a lot of people would come up to me and ask me, you know, what's going to happen about Brexit or what's going to happen in the American elections or all kinds of things. And I started thinking, well, this is a stupid question. Uh, A, because what on earth makes anybody think I will know? But also it seemed to uh, have within it the belief that the future was knowable and that some people had kind of special access to it. And the way I started thinking was it's as though people imagine that the future lies behind a closed door and some people have the key and can take a peek. And I thought, but this is all wrong. (laughs) Everything about this is wrong. And in particular, I became very alert to the fact that there was a great rhetoric of inevitability starting to build up, um, largely, but not exclusively driven by the tech sector. You know, driverless cars are inevitable. AI is inevitable. Automation and being taken over by robots is inevitable. And I thought, well, this is ridiculous. For one thing, this is just propaganda, the kind of trying to sell stuff. And for another thing, it's it's assuming that all of life is determined and we are just kind of passive players in a script written by someone else somewhere. And I thought there's nothing about this that I believe. And, you know, I studied university at Cambridge. I studied philosophy at Cambridge. You know, I understand free will and determinism. I also understand complexity and the degree to which we routinely in life find ourselves in complex environments where the outcome is not perfectly determined. And it seemed to me that this rhetoric of inevitability and this implied rather covert um, emphasis on determinism 
was actually taking people's sense of agency and possibility away. It was, if not if not designed to make people passive, it was certainly having that impact. It was leaving people feeling helpless. And so I wrote the book really in quite an impassioned um, argument about why this was not true and could not be true, that at least the forces of inevitability were prejudiced, inadequate, and incomplete. And that actually the harder thing was to accept that we cannot know the future because it hasn't happened yet. And while that might be quite daunting because it means we face lots of uncertainty, it's also quite encouraging because it means we have a lot of options and moments in which to make very important choices. And it's really critical that we not miss those, that we not be so um, browbeaten or so passive that we miss the opportunities that are in front of us to shape the kind of future that we want. And is that the value that for you is at the heart of this? So you're you're objecting to this, this well, in any way you think it's false, but you're also objecting almost morally to this idea of um, that we're just passive uh, being swept along by these inevitable tides. But um, so the value at the heart of that is a regard, I suppose, for um, self-determination, choice. So I think I think that's right. And I think you're, you're spot on because I do think that it is morally wrong to deprive people of their sense of agency. I think that's what totalitarian regimes do. Um, and I think, therefore, it's all the more important for us to fight to hang on to it. Um, but I think inside of that is also a great faith in human creativity, human intelligence, the enormous capacity of human beings to work together to create things that no single human could ever, ever create, and our ability to solve hard problems and to invent amazing things. And, you know, it's it's interesting in this context that one of the chapters of the books is about cathedrals. And I really, I love cathedrals. My husband and I have done a tour of all the cathedrals in England. And this is not... Oh, that's very popular these days, yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. And this is yeah. not because I am a religious person. But I have enormous respect for the builders of cathedrals who in their desire to make something beautiful for the future were able to start building something they knew they would never see completed. The great Gothic Gothic cathedrals of Europe had no architects. So these were, if you like, improvised and adapted as time went by. And all they really had was faith in the value of the work and the meaning of the work. Now, over time, that meaning has also adapted, and it's very fascinating to visit cathedrals and think, what does this building mean here in Leicester, in Sheffield, in York? What does it mean to people today? And what's really fascinating is some of them really mean a lot. Sheffield Cathedral, for example, is a really vibrant center um, for looking after the homeless. And some of them mean nothing. They're museums and they're tourist attractions, 
But in terms of their spiritual ethos, I would say they're dead as doornails. So what is it you admire? I mean, a moment ago you said something which I thought was interesting, that you you'd, you admire the uh, the way in which the builders of these great cathedrals, and you could add many other um, you know, multi-generational works as well, the way that they built and worked in spite of the fact that they wouldn't see the full realization mm. of this. What, what What is it, though, that, that appeals about that? What do you um, mm. regard well about that attitude? I think they had faith in their own human capacity for creativity. Mm. I think they had faith in their ability to make something beautiful and belief that something beautiful mattered to other people. And I share that faith. I felt that also in your work about the future, and I think in part in what you've just said, though not maybe explicit, is that you have quite a regard for human sturdiness, resilience. Mm. That seems to be something you believe in that you think is a pretty, both a, a positive feature of us, but also a value. Yes. And I think we, again, I think we underrate that tremendously. There's a chapter in my book about existential crises. So these are moments where you can't e- you can't think about the future anymore because bang you're right in the middle of a crisis and what matters now is now and um and i looked at this on an individual level about uh, the story of an irish priest who um decided to leave the church and what that meant and i looked at business leaders running organizations on the brink of collapse and i looked at aids activists um, fighting for their lives during the AIDS crisis that started in the 1980s. And uh, what I was looking for was really, you know, what is it in these excruciating and painful moments where really ev- all the odds are terrible? What is it that keeps people going? And, you know, there, there's a very long and complex answer to that. But one of the most important answers is that what keeps people going is other people. So, you know, when I talk to business leaders and, you know, these were quite surprising interviews because all of them were running, you know, big uh, multi-billion pound organizations. And at some point in re- in retelling these stories, every person I interviewed wept. I mean, these are very emotional moments, and I think we often hugely undervalue um, the amount of emotion that there is in work. So I asked them, you know, clearly this was mentally and emotionally the most demanding experience of your lives. What on earth got you through it? You know, you could have walked away. You could have quit. Why didn't you? And every single one of them said, well, I had friends and they kept me going and they reassured me and, you know, they cheered me up when I was down or they kind of pushed me when I was starting to slow and they listened and they understood. And in many cases, these were friends and colleagues and we just kept going for each other. And, you know, on one level, this is so close to my own beliefs that I as I read the transcripts of the interviews, I thought, well, of course, Margaret, why didn't you see this coming? <laughs> but in a way, it was great that I didn't see it coming. You know, I, that, wasn't what, that wasn't what I was expecting to hear. 
And so it was all the more meaningful. And I think, you know, most moving and painful of all really was talking to um, people who had been activists during the AIDS crisis and what they put up with and the degree to which even as their friends were dying, I mean, one person I interviewed lost 40% of his friends in a year. Unthinkable. Even as they went through that, they kept fighting because they couldn't not. They were fighting for their lives and for ours. And I think it's a period of history that we have not paid nearly enough attention to. There are real heroes, not, you know, comic book heroes. There are real heroes in this story, very ordinary people who saw ways that they could help, who made an absolutely transformational difference when they could just apply their skill to a need in the crisis. And I think what that shows us is something that is, you know, a very central belief in my life, which is there is so much more to each individual human being than most of us ever see, and very much more than organizations ever see. And really, you know, our mission in life is to find it, celebrate it, support it, because this is really the glory of being human. And that's something you see as an important part of your own approach to life, the idea that each person should um, be able to pursue that sort of self-development. Absolutely. And that everybody has that richness to find in themselves. So I get very um, angry when I see stupidities like um, personal profiling technologies uh, you know, like, like the Myers-Briggs test. Or the <laughs> We've all done it. We've all done it. Which we have all done, <laughs> which are all stupid and are all statistically um, unsubstantiable and which try to put people into boxes, in the Myers-Briggs case specifically in a box, and by doing that limit even the way that people think about themselves, because there is this well-known thing called the four effect that says, by and large, we believe what people tell us about ourselves. And this hugely constrains our sense of our own ability and capacity. So you're against it in principle, even if it were possible to to profile people accurately, which of course you're saying it isn't anyway, or at least not, not yet in these forms, you, you'd be against it in principle. I don't think it is possible to do in principle. Right. And as a consequence, I think it's a fatuous exercise. I see. But I think it's more than that from from, from what from what you're saying. I mean it's I feel like you're you're almost saying that even if it were true, still we shouldn't do it because that would deny people the opportunity for testing themselves further and doing things differently and so on. Well, if, right? if it were true, if I could get a profile of a person as rich as the person themselves, right, that's not then possible. it might, that, yeah. in theory, uh, let them see aspects of themselves they had not seen before. But I don't think it is true because it is always necessarily a snapshot in time. And people develop capabilities because of what life throws at them. Now, one of the idiocies of Myers-Briggs is that they believe type never changes, which is, you know, neurological nonsense since our brain continues to change till the minute that we die. But the truth is that 
we keep changing and we discover new things in ourselves. And, you know, in a way, this is, um, there's a sort of parallel here with Karl Popper's view that history did not repeat itself, right? He said it, it can't repeat itself because history is driven by new knowledge and by definition, we can't predict new knowledge. So there are always going to be unexpected things happening. He was talking, of course, about you know gigantic trends in the world. I would say exactly the same thing applies to individuals, which is because I don't know what particular challenge is going to be thrown at me this year or next year, I don't know how I'm going to change. And therefore, I don't know, and nobody can know, the full capacity of my potential. Um, you know, when I was 30, my husband was very violently killed. And, um, and I could not have told you when I was 29 how I would have responded to that. Because, A, I wouldn't have understood the event at all, of course, because it was so alien to my experience mm. of life. Um, and because whatever I'd imagined, I'd have got, you know, probably from books and movies. I'm a different person because of that experience. That experience was not in any way inevitable. It was a kind of freak and terrible accident. Um, but, you know, my strengths and weaknesses are significantly, you know, enlarged or diminished by how I responded to it. So I think this idea that anything or anybody can take a snapshot of someone and say, now we know everything past, present, and future about them is, you know, as, as we were saying before, I think it's both incorrect and I think it's immoral. So you're interested, though, obviously, in the dynamic, unexpected developments in human beings as well as in wider events. And you seem also to admire the qualities that go um, together with being receptive to that dynamic, unexpected change, you know, flexibility, imagination, yeah. courage, a certain courage. I think you would, it sounds like you admire the, yeah. the courage of human beings in the face of this adversity. I do. I always kind of uh, back away from the word because... Um, it scares people and mostly makes them think that's not me. And I think, right. um, you know, I think lots of people demonstrate all kinds of courage in all kinds of ways. And I think it's important to celebrate it without making other people feel it feel lesser. But mm. um, what I think is really remarkable is how people do adapt to extraordinary circumstances. Um, my daughter does has done quite a lot of work with refugees, you know, and I think of the life that they've had in the last 10 years, and I think, oh, my God, how on earth would I ever be able to cope with something like that? And, you know, I'm sure that 10 years ago, they never imagined that they would have to either. And they found in themselves some extraordinary capacity to keep themselves and their families alive. Sometimes, not all of them, but some of them. And um, and that's extraordinary. And we should respect it. And we definitely shouldn't, you know, disparage them because they've, you know, been forced to discover capacities in themselves that we maybe only glimpse in ourselves. So I think, you know, I, I do think human beings have this amazing, imaginative, creative capacity and that much of our modern life is not deliberately, or not always deliberately, but very much focused on constraining it, reducing it, distracting it. Whereas, you know, there's there's gold in them, their hills, and we should be mining it 
in our well, lives. Think, our then, that, that we're not. I mean, when you say, I mean, uh, if you could perhaps just give an indication of the sort of barriers to that, if our modern condition is inhibiting mm. uh, human development or the, um, well, the sort of positive uh, realization of our greater strengths, what is it that's inhibiting that today? Well, I think lots of things. Um, certainly, I would say that the competitive ethos um, of the last 30 years has been really unhelpful. And I, I wrote a book called A Bigger Prize, which specifically looks at this, at you know what a really competitive environment does to people. And many things come out of that, but one of the things that I found was, you know, the more competitive the environment, the more people will cheat. Um, that if, you know, if too much, if too much is at stake and all that matters is the outcome, then it doesn't really matter how I get the desired outcome. So very competitive uh, corporate cultures will lead to fraud and deception and misrepresentation. Very competitive educational systems lead to cheating and plagiarism and, you know, fixing the rankings of students and teachers and so on. Very competitive societies um, tend to be more corrupt because if you're at the bottom of the heap, you can't get things done the right way, the legal way. Right. If you're at the top of the heap, um, you can get away with anything. <laughs> so I think, I think putting up people under competitive stress, while neo-Darwinians imagine that that brings out the best in people, you know, typically it just keeps them so focused on the prize that they lose the capacity to think more broadly than that. So it very much narrows our sense of ourselves and of the world. Um, I think a lot of management systems like forced ranking do exactly that. And it's interesting because this system of ranking everybody and then kind of celebrating the top 10% and chucking out the bottom 10% was designed, I like to think, you know, in good faith to motivate people and, you know, what we found after decades of employing this kind of management is that it did exactly the opposite. Um, it made the people at the top and the bottom afraid. At the bottom afraid they were going to be fired and at the top afraid that they might lose their prime position. So it made them quite conservative and often quite dysfunctional and rivalrous. But you don't have to be a mathematical whiz kid to see the safest place in that context is the big fat middle. So it encourages people to be conformist and deeply average. It's interesting what you're saying, because usually people who object to competition or think that competitive um, ethos is a, a destructive are saying that with a, as a prelude to saying they prefer cooperation, right? Mm -hmm. So it's competition versus cooperation. Whereas you're almost opposing um, competition to personal development, personal fulfillment, mm. um, personal growth. Mm. Well, I think it's very narrowing because it de de right. defines goals and prizes and awards and so on. And it definitely has the intended effect of focusing people quite myopically on that. But of course, what that means is that they ignore everything else and everything else, you know, has real value. So, um, for example, if you look at big pharma, you know, the focus on profits means that people, that companies develop the, the really profitable drugs that are really easy to develop. That's one reason why the cupboard is pretty bare when it comes to antibiotics. It's another reason why until recently 
we have invested so little in the development of vaccines because they're very, very difficult and expensive to develop. So it's much easier to make, to patent a marginal, marginal, marginal variation of an existing best-selling drug and call ourselves successful. And the competition between pharmaceutical companies has so narrowed the field that we have tons of things that we need in all kinds of minute varieties, but oceans of need when it comes to things like antivirals, vaccines, and antibiotics. Mm. And that's because of these incentives that are... And it's why, you know, the best company is the most profitable company and all of these very much needed drugs and therapies uh, risk uh, making a company less profitable. So if you're in a race to the top, that's the stuff you definitely want to avoid because it's worthwhile, but it's risky. This certainly sounds like an inhospitable in- environment for individual growth and the realization yeah. of one's own strengths. <laughs> yeah, and I think yeah. I, mean, I know a lot of scientists who've gone into these companies, you know, hoping that they'd be able to take all their fantastic knowledge and apply it to real therapies, and are just dismayed to discover that you know they're just they're just trying to find another you know anti-balding therapy or let's just take an existing arthritis drug and tweak it so we can renew the patent i mean this is you know this is just a terrible way to use the the treasures of science you mentioned uh, earlier on karl popper hmm. uh, who was um a very devoted uh, patron of humanist uk actually hmm. and uh, a very useful oh, member of oh yes yeah um uh, very much so. His concept in particular of the open society yes. um, was one that humanists in the UK picked up and ran with and led eventually to statutory citizenship education in England and Wales in schools mm. um, to try and foster, uh, you know, critical thinking and the democratic spirit and so on. So he's right. very much um, part of our own organisation inheritance. Um, and you may want to say something about that, but where I was going to go with it was that um, uh, Karl Popper as you touched on, had things to say about um, disagreement and conflicting views and and, and falsifiability and so on. And your own work as well has um, celebrated, I thought particularly interestingly, um, celebrated uh, conflict between people as a creative force. Yes, very much so. That's an interesting idea to me, and I'm sure it would be um, interesting to hear it uh, elaborated. So I wrote um, I wrote a book called Willful Blindness, uh, very much in the wake of the financial crisis, where lots of people went around saying, "Oh, we couldn't have seen this coming." And I thought, "Oh, don't be ridiculous! People have seen this coming, you know, for years." And um, and I found lots of people who had, you know, there was documentary evidence they'd been writing about it. Uh, so this was not hindsight. This was you know, stuff in 2002, 2005, saying, you know, very bad things are coming and this is where they are and why they are. And they were right. And and these were authoritative voices that people had chosen to ignore. So I became, and, and when I realized that, I then thought of all the other contexts in which willful blindness occurs, you know, not least um, in the Third Reich, where you had lots of good Germans choosing to ignore what was actually going on in their country. So I became very interested in this and um, 
And I also discovered some very interesting research into a field now called organizational silence about the degree to which in organizations, people know when things are going wrong, but everybody just turns away. So that's Volkswagen emissions. It's the mis-selling in banks. It's um, fraud at Wells Fargo uh, and so on and so forth. And I was really trying to dig into what are the mechanisms that allow this to occur. And one of the really best stories I encountered was the story of an Oxford physician named Alice Stewart, who, after the Second World War, wondered why there was a rising incidence in childhood cancers, specifically among well-off families. And typically, disease is correlated with um, uh, poverty. But in this case, it absolutely was not. And she did what became the largest ever study of childhood cancers in the UK. And what her research showed was that by rate of three to one, the kids who died of cancer had uh, mothers who'd been x-rayed when pregnant. And she published her research. There was a big fanfare around it. And yet it took 25 years before doctors stopped x-raying pregnant women. So this was a magnificent example of willful blindness. The data is there. It's in front of people who have the capacity to understand it, and yet they choose to ignore it. And one of the things I was curious about was, wow, how do you keep going for 25 years battling the medical establishment um, when you know they don't want to listen to you? And what I discovered was that her, I think it was her daughter who told me this. She had worked with a statistician named George Neal. And George was totally different from Alice. Alice was very gregarious and sociable and, and George was not. And, um, and he, he almost never spoke, but he said one very brilliant thing, which he said, my job is to try to prove Dr. Stewart is wrong. Because if I can't, if I can't find an alternative explanation, then she has the confidence and courage to keep going. And I remember, you know, just that took my breath away. I thought, this is a tremendous example of collaboration. So here are two people who are working together, you know, not to amplify each other, um, not to echo each other, but to make their work stronger, more robust, and to give each other the courage and confidence to keep digging and digging and digging. And I think it is a magnificent example of collaboration. And it, you know, everything I write changes me in lots of ways. And it has made me much more determined to seek out people not like me, to work with people not like me, because these are the people I'm going to learn from. You know, the people who agree with everything that I say or who have a similar background or outlook. I mean, I love them to bits, of course, but, <laughs> um, but actually I have more to learn from people who challenge me and ask questions and so on. And I was talking about this at a book festival once and somebody said, so, so what's your family dinner table like? <laughs> and I said, well, actually, it is full of argument and debate. I mean, often to the point that when my kids used to bring people, you know, get friends home from school, they were rather taken aback. <laughs> but <laughs> the outcome is, you know, my kids are sometimes exhaustingly very good critical thinkers. They do think for themselves. They don't take stuff um, 
for granted in blind faith. And I think that's a pretty powerful advantage in life. I'm very reminded of one of my favorite stories about Bertrand Russell, which is when he went to visit his old teacher, uh, Whitehead, who was ill and dying. And um, and he fetches up and Whitehead asks him what he's been working on. And he does his normal, very dazzling intellectual turn. And Whitehead turns to him and says, um, that's very clever, but is it true? <laughs> and I think it's such a fantastic story because, you know, it's well meant, of course, but it is the question which is after all the logic and all the intellectual firepower, does it feel consonant with your experience of life? Because if it doesn't, you really need to, to think again. And I think it's that question of this is very clever, is it true, is one that we should all carry in our heads. I particularly wish you know the maestros of Silicon Valley would think about it every time they write an algorithm, um, because it is possible to be intellectual and logical and rational and reach some terrible conclusions which are not true. This was Bertrand Russell's view in his history of philosophy of the of the medieval Christian logicians. He mm. said, you know, everything that they wrote was completely logical um, and completely untrue. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he made the point that they never, as you say, stood back to say, "Okay, I've created this this structure, this system. I've you know elaborated these propositions. Are, now, are they are they accurate? <laughs> Do yeah. they reflect reality?" And I think it's a question I wish people would ask every day in Silicon Valley. You know, we've written these algorithms that we think are so frightfully clever, but are they true? Do they reflect the truth about people? And I have to say, I think a very large proportion of the time, the answer is no. It's very interesting, isn't it? Critical thinking as a, as a concept is strangely unfashionable in, in most countries' education systems. Mm. Well, it's interesting. I've just written a blog post saying, you know, our education system left us ill-prepared for this pandemic. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, I think there is more emphasis than there used to be in some educational systems um, on critical thinking, uh, but certainly not nearly enough. No, definitely not nearly enough. And I think it's it's when it when it is present, it's often um, instrumental for a, a cause other than finding out what's true. They sort of go, oh, we must teach skills of critical thinking because they're really vital today when engaging with the internet or, you know, something, yeah. which is true, you're right, yeah. but, um, but it's not as if the, the need for critical thinking is a novelty. No. It's, it's, something, it's something that we've yeah. always needed. And, um, you know, previous generations, their critical thinkers have made, well, like Bertrand Russell, some of the biggest contributions to human progress. And yeah. it's a, but also when you think, you know, if a... If a doctor asks a nurse to do something and it's wrong, you want critical thinking then. Right, exactly. You know, if um, you know, if your boss tells you to do something immoral, you really want critical thinking then. Um, I mean, it seems to me it is an absolutely fundamental bulwark in all human life. And it's astounding to me that it's almost entirely absent 
from our educational curriculum. Well, that was Margaret Heffernan telling us about her life and her outlook on the world as a humanist for the What I Believe podcast. What I Believe is the podcast from Humanist UK. This was the fourth episode of our first season, and we're carrying on releasing new episodes every Thursday. If you'd like to support the podcast or find out more about the humanist approach to life, about Humanist UK or the work that we do, you can find that out at the Humanist UK website, humanists.uk, where you can also join as a member or support our work. Next week, I'll be talking to psychologist and magician Richard Wiseman about what he believes. (laughs) 